Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, I'm going to talk about the future. If there's ever been something that captures people's imagination, it's, it's the future. All of us, I think, have wondered about how things will turn out. Uh, what will happen if we make one decision or another? People enjoy reading stories about the future. They enjoy imagining what it'll be like in 20 years or 100 years. And for some people, this can even become a problem. Focusing on the future can become a way of escaping the past. People that always have uh, their their mind in what might happen, what will happen in the in the future, and so they don't focus on the task at hand. It can become a source of anxiety. In fact, the Lord Jesus warns us against worrying about the future. As he says, each day has enough trouble of its own. But at the same time, the Word of God encourages us to think about the future in a godly way. God gives us many prophecies that describe future events, future things that He will do. And He reveals those to us for a specific reason, not to just tickle our fancy or to uh, give us an interesting window into what will happen, but He does it for a very good reason. And it's to one of these prophetic passages that I want us to turn to this morning. If you could, please take your Bible with me and open to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25. Like many prophetic passages, Isaiah 25 gives us a glimpse into the future. But it's really, as we'll see, all about worship. Who will worship? The prophet urges us to think deeply about what God has done for us and what He will do. And it calls us to respond to those acts of God in worship and in praise and faithfulness. In many ways, this passage is an Old Testament statement of the hope of the gospel, of eternal life, that every missionary, that every believer takes to a lost and dying world. A world that worships anything but the Creator who made them. This text has been on my heart recently, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would use these inspired truths to challenge and encourage us and to renew a heart of worship in all of us. Let's read the text together. It's Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 9. The prophet writes, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will give thanks to Your name, for You have worked wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat in a drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. 
And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Now before we look at this beautiful text, I want to give you a little bit of context. I know Isaiah can be a little bit of an intimidating, intimidating book. The, the book of Isaiah can be divided into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 39 focus on mainly on God's judgment, while verses, or chapters 40 through 66 focus on his salvation. But you can see these, these two themes intermingled all over the book. You'll be going through a chapter on judgment and then suddenly he'll break into a, a praise and worship of God based on his salvation. Isaiah ministered during the divided kingdom with Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and Judah in the south. And he mainly ministered in in the south and Judah. Probably all of us remember uh, Isaiah's famous call to ministry in in chapter 6, this incredible vision of God that he's given of his throne room surrounded by the seraphim. That's followed by Isaiah's interactions with King Ahaz, one of the kings of Judah, And the prophecies of Emmanuel, the the righteous branch who will rule one day with justice and righteousness. And then in chapters 13 through 23, we, we come to this long section where God is foretelling the judgment on the nations that he will bring and on Israel itself for their apostasy. It's ten chapters of doom and destruction as God deals with sin. It's really exhausting in a way and chilling reading as God pours out his wrath. And all that judgment culminates in chapter 24 where the prophet looks forward to the final judgment at the end of the world. Look back a couple pages uh, to chapter 24, in the uh, beginning of the chapter. He says, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste and devastates it. He distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades away and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Drop down to verse 19. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is violently shaken. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. So it will happen in that day. The Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of earth on earth, and they will be gathered together like prisoners in a dungeon and will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. 
It's a terrible vision of the future of the last day. All the wickedness and the sin that the world has wallowed in for centuries and millennia finally comes to end, an end, as God says, enough. But by the mercy and love and grace of God, there are some who are saved from this judgment. It's his people who are bought with a price. And in chapter 25, Isaiah looks beyond that judgment to the day of God's full salvation. He revels in the salvation and glory that awaits every believer. And it causes us to worship the Lord and to continue in our lives now in hope and confidence. In this text, we find three elements of worship in in light of God's saving love. Three elements of worship. The call to worship in verse 1. In the middle section, the reasons for God's worship. And then finally, the way to worship. Let's begin with a call to worship in verse 1. Isaiah begins by making it crystal clear who he's worshiping. O Lord, you are my God. The first thing I want you to notice is this word, Lord. Now, uh, you all probably know this, but I'm a little embarrassed to say that I had been reading the Bible for a while before I realized that the word Lord in all capital letters is actually representing God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. So just in case there's anyone out there who's like me, now you know. When you come across this capital, uh, this word Lord in all capital letters, it means Yahweh, God's name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. And that name is connected to the Hebrew verb uh, for being, to be. And it communicates God's self-existence, which means he doesn't depend on anyone or anything else for his life. He has life in himself. And that's why he says to Moses, when Moses asks God, who should I say sent me to the people of Israel? God says, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God felt that the best way to communicate himself to his people was to express that I am so different than you. I have life in myself. You depend on something else and someone else for your life, but not so, not so with me. We find the Lord Jesus using this name a number of times in the Gospels. For example, in John 8, where he's having this long discussion with the Jewish people, and he kind of comes to a conclusion by saying, before Abraham was, I am. He's taking God's name for himself. And the people picked up stones to stone him because they knew what he was doing. You know, some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. They, you know, they want him to come out and say it in in so many words. And so they say, well, he was, you know, misunderstood or or the the apostles and and later on the apostle Paul kind of changed it and and deified him where he never claimed that for himself. And that's not true. Uh, The Jews knew exactly what he was saying, that he was making himself equal with God. So as you read in the Old Testament, watch out for for God's personal name. It appears six times in chapter 25 of Isaiah. And think about it in the terms of uh, idolatry, of the idolatry that was surrounding the nation of Israel in that time. You know, there there was quite a list of gods that you could choose from to worship. Baal, Molech, Dagon, to just name a few that we find in the pages of Scripture. There were a lot of choices, but Isaiah makes it crystal clear. He says to the Lord, you are my God. It's a very personal and clear statement. 
And it's not a group perspective, which is interesting. You often the the prophet would speak for the people as a nation. He uses the royal we, we could say, but not here. He's making a very personal commitment to God. And why has he done this? Well, he goes on to show us because of the wonders that God has done in verse the end of verse one. Wonders refers to things that only God can do his miraculous power. This word is used of the plagues that God sent on the people of Egypt in the Exodus. And it refers to his judgment that we read about in the previous chapter. But it also refers to his salvation that we're going to read about. The God who has done this is my God. Isaiah also connects these wonders to God's faithful plans in the next line. God's actions in the world are not random. They're not thoughtless. He, he's not lashing out when he judges the nations. He's not lashing out in anger. His anger and his judgment come in the perfect time and the right proportion. That's the difference between our anger and God's anger. His anger is under control and it fits the offense. Think again about the idolatry in Isaiah's day. One of the key uh, points that Isaiah and the other prophets would make is that idols can't think. They don't feel. They don't make plans. But God not only makes plans, he has the power to bring them about. As Nebuchadnezzar realized in the book of Daniel, no one can stay God's hand or say to him, what have you done? So Isaiah makes his commitment. This little word for in verse 2 moves us to the next section. But before we go there, I want to encourage you to think about your own profession of faith, your own commitment to the Lord. There's no question who Isaiah follows. He wants to identify with. He wants to belong to Yahweh, his God. Is it the same? Is it as clear for you and me as we go through this life, as we're before our family, as we're before our coworkers and the people around us, that there's a clear statement? Maybe not in a a proclamation like Isaiah is making, but clear nonetheless. In biblical times, people would, as I said, pick a God to follow. We don't really do that too much in America anymore, but it doesn't mean that the question of worship has disappeared from people that don't believe in any God. We were created for worship, and so everyone worships and serves something. Often today, it's worship of self our pleasures, our desires. But there's no question that worship is taking place. If someone was to record your daily life and, and watch you as you go from one thing to the next, would it be clear who you worship, where your priorities are, what you talk about the most, what the goal of your life is, who you belong to? Well, the prophet has clearly uh, proclaimed his allegiance and worship to Yahweh. And in verse 2, he continues to talk about why. He gives us the reasons for worship. That's the second element we find of worship in this text, the reasons for worship. It's the main focus of this chapter, so we're going to spend most of our time here this morning. Isaiah gives us two two reasons to worship God, and both of them flow out of his love for his own people. The first reason to worship God is because he rescues and protects his people. You probably notice these two groups that we have here in verses 2 through 5. 
we have the wicked, these, these wicked, powerful nations on one side, and we have the afflicted and the needy on the other side, which is speaking of God's people. God punishes one and rescues the other. Now, this is a very familiar statement. We find all over Scripture that God cares for the afflicted and needy um, and that he will judge the wicked. But Isaiah lingers on these two groups of people for a reason, and I want to draw out an important distinction that he's making here. Notice how he emphasizes where each of these groups finds their strength, or you could even say which who uh, each of these groups worships, who they depend on. The ruthless nations depend on themselves. They're, they're called strong. They have fortified cities. They oppress the helpless ruthlessly with that strength. The illustrations in verses 4 and 5 are of life-threatening, uncontrollable events in the land of Israel. The, the scorching heat um, there, as it says, or you could say um, in a drought or in a dry place, is describing uh, the heat of the day in, the, in a desert place. A couple of weeks ago, we were visiting a church in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, it was nice to be there in, in March. Uh, we've been there before in July, and it's a very different experience. And you can imagine, you know, being out in the desert place, like a lot of the land of Israel, and the sun is at its strength. Um, it just saps away your strength very quickly, and there's nothing you can really protect yourself from that on your own. Or a torrential rain that washes away anything that's not anchored well. These, these illustrations portray the, these nations as powerful forces of nature over which God's people have no control or recourse at all. There's literally nothing they can do to stop them. You know, even with all of our technology and our ability and engineering and building, if a big enough storm comes, it'll wash whatever we can build away. Or if an earthquake comes or something like that. That's the picture here. But the second group is pictured as needy and helpless. They don't have any power in themselves. They depend solely on God to defend them. This attitude of humility, this recognition of powerlessness and dependence on the Lord is is a really important matter to him. We find this all over the scripture. Whether we're talking about um, national rescue or political um, help that God has given Israel many times or salvation from death and sin, as we'll see in a few verses. Probably most of us know James chapter 4, verse 6 by heart. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's what we see here. We could spend the rest of our time together looking at this theme of humility and dependence in Scripture, and especially how uh, humility and dependence is tied to holiness, and it's tied to usefulness for God. But I'll just uh, mention one passage. Isaiah, later in the book, in chapter 66, says, To this one I will look, this is God speaking, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's who God is looking for. That's the kind of worshipers that he wants. When we recognize our own weakness and inability, it's God who gets the glory when he works in our lives to accomplish his will or when he rescues us from a trial or something that's outside of our control, as we see in our text. So let me ask you, who are you depending on this morning? Which of these two groups 
would you find yourself in? When trials come into your life, maybe even in the form of wicked people, as we see here, do you trust in God and in his promises, or do you try to handle it in your own strength? Do you look elsewhere to cope with it? Are you willing to sin in order to make things easier? You know, often when we go through a trial, the temptation to sin increases the longer the trial goes on. The temptation to make things easier for ourselves. You're having money problems, you get maybe a little bit tempted to to cheat on your taxes, something like that. Uh, That's just one example of how um, we're tempted in those ways. But somebody who's relying solely on the Lord will trust Him and to walk through that. God might not act in the time or in the way that we think he should, but he will protect us. He will be a refuge, as he promises here to the people of Israel. And those powerful, wicked people that seem so strong, God deals with them easily. Like, as it says, a cloud suddenly cutting off the heat of of the sun. They are powerless in the judgment. It makes me think of Psalm 2, where God uh, is portrayed as laughing at the wicked as as the wicked nations plot against him and his anointed one. He just laughs because they're impotent before him. But God's love doesn't stop merely with rescuing, merely rescuing his people from the wicked. He saves them from death and sin itself. And we see this in verses 6 through 8. This is the second reason for worship. And again, God's Total sovereignty is on display. He's not some kind of local idol that just had authority over a certain area people thought and and nothing more. There's this kind of humorous section in 1 Kings 20 where um, some of Israel's uh, enemies are coming against them and they were defeated before when they were fighting them up in the hills. And so they tell each other, okay, we're not going to fight them in the hills this time. We'll we'll draw them down into the plain because their God, he's in charge of the hills. And so if we get them into the plain, we're going to prevail. And God sends his prophet to Israel. And um, the nation, I think, at that time wasn't even really following the Lord that faithfully. But God sends the prophet and said, I'm going to give these people into your hand. You're going to defeat them because they've said this. We're going to defeat them into the plain so that they will know, as he says, I am Yahweh. God has authority over creation and over life and death itself. Now, of course, God loves all of his creation, but he has a special love for his people, those that he's adopted into his family as sons and daughters through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John writes that God is love. It's one of only two descriptions like that in the Bible, the other one being God is holy. And we see that love richly displayed here as Isaiah gives us a glimpse into that day when the curse of Adam is finally removed. And it all begins with this feast in verse 6. Now, when you're reading prophecy, a lot of times you have to decide whether the prophet is using a metaphor, a word picture, or if he's really talking about something physical that will happen in the future. And I believe that the feast that he pictures here is a physical event that will happen in history, even though it does have symbolic significance. And I say this because there's no indication in the text here that this is a symbol or a metaphor. Earlier in verses 4 and 5, we see these metaphors. It's uh, Their breath is like a storm. 
It's like heat in a dry place. But we don't see any of that kind of language here in verse 6. In addition, there are some statements uh, by the Lord Jesus that point to a physical event. In Matthew 1, or I'm sorry, Matthew 8, 11, Jesus is marveling at the faith of the centurion who told Jesus that he could just say the word and that his servant would be healed. And then Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Later in the upper room, Jesus gives the bread and the wine to the disciples. And he says to them, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. I believe that what Isaiah is picturing here is none other than the marriage supper of the lamb that we find in Revelation 19 as God's people celebrate salvation together. And the details of this feast here in Isaiah that we're given communicate some really wonderful and beautiful things about God's love for us, about his love for his people. First, it shows that God gives his best to them. This is lavish love. He provides very special, rich food for them in this feast. Some of you might be looking at uh, this uh, statement here, choice pieces of marrow. And, you know, it doesn't sound that appetizing. Um, although I was talking to a chef about this passage and he's like, no, the marrow is the good stuff. That's what you put in the soup if you want it to be rich. So some of you might understand this a little better. But it's talking about rich food, a special meal that you would only have on a very rare occasion. You know, we all we all know that things boiled in oil are, are better, right? If, uh, if you don't have to worry about your cholesterol like these people don't. Um, I've been told that just once in my life, I need to go to a good steakhouse and order a hundred dollar steak because it's worth it at least once in your life. I haven't had the chance to test that assertion, but that's that that's what this is talking about. It's talking about a rare and rich treat. Think about what this kind of food represents in an agrarian culture 2,700 years ago. You know, there's no supermarkets, there's no commercial farming, no food processing, there's no kitchen gadgets or machines. Um, a missionary I know who uh, served in Africa for a number of years, she said that uh, when she came back to America for a visit, she just realized how most of our food is already half prepared when you get it in the supermarket, you know, um, just uh, especially like the meat is all cut up in nice portions. It's not the same in a lot of places. A feast like this in Isaiah's day would have been all made from scratch and all made from hand, and it would have been very good. It's interesting, in the Old uh, Testament sacrificial system, the fat portions, the best portions of the sacrifices were reserved for the Lord um, as an act of worship and love. But here we see the tables turned, and God is giving the best portions, the fat portions, to his people because he loves them. It's lavish love. Another remarkable part of this feast is who is invited. Notice how it says all nations, both in verses 6 and 7. This isn't limited just to the Jewish people. All the nations are invited to this feast. Number of times in the New Testament, you see the Jewish people, even the apostles, amazed that God would extend the offer of salvation, that he would extend even his spirit um, to Gentiles. But they shouldn't have been surprised because there are hints like this all through the Old Testament that God has a plan for the people of Israel and he has a plan for the Gentiles together. Even in his original promise to Abraham, we can hear it. 
He said, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This future day that Isaiah looks forward to is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. Now, moving on from the feast, we really see the greatest example of God's love, salvation from death and sin itself. There's possibly a a play on words here uh, when it says that God uh, will swallow up death for all time. You know, all of us, all of the believers are here having this wonderful feast, swallowing this wonderful food, and God is swallowing up death. And it uses that language to communicate something that's totally taken out of existence. It's not just destroyed and the ruins are there. It's totally uh, extinguished from reality. Death is ended forever. And since death comes from sin, this means that sin is ended as well. A couple times he says that it will take place on this mountain. Now, what mountain is he referring to? We know from the end of chapter 24 that this is talking about Mount Zion which came to represent all of Jerusalem, all the little hill there that uh, Jerusalem sits upon. And it's no accident that these events are happening here on the mountain of Jerusalem. The Father is fulfilling the work that Jesus completed on the cross thousands of years before on this very spot. All the effects of the atonement are finally accomplished on that day. And as if all of this needed somehow a greater sense of authority and finality, Isaiah says, for Yahweh has spoken. Now, Isaiah could have simply left uh, us only with this first sentence in verse 8, and we would have understood where he says he will swallow up death for all time. But then he goes on to gives us and gives us another amazing picture of God's love in light of his ultimate sovereignty. And he says, God will wipe away tears from all faces. I want to focus on this statement for just a minute. I mentioned before that God's sovereign power is a recurring theme in Isaiah. We can see that in this passage from God's actions, his authority over the nations and over sin and death, but also from the names that Isaiah uses for God. I mentioned a few minutes ago that the the word Lord in all caps refers to God's personal name, Yahweh. And in our text, that name is combined with two other terms that show his power and authority. Look at verse 6, where Isaiah calls him the Lord of hosts. It's a very common name for God, especially in the prophets. And um, it might be a little obscure for us. We don't usually use the name or the word hosts in English, except maybe sometimes to mean a lot. Like the sentence, there's a whole host of reasons why you shouldn't do that. You might say to your kids sometimes. (laughs) I've never said that, of course. Um, Hosts is translating a Hebrew word that usually means armies. But it can also refer to a large group that's not involved in fighting. Like in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 1, when God is finished creating, he refers to all of creation as all of the host of heaven and earth. So this name of God refers to his, his rule and authority, his position over every power and rule in the world, every created thing. And it's used dozens of times in Isaiah. Um, A notable example I already mentioned in chapter 6, when Isaiah is called by God, we see the seraphim around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The second special name is in verse 8. 
and it has a similar significance. God's name is combined with the Hebrew title Adonai, which means Lord. So literally, the name here in verse 8 is Lord Yahweh. The translators add the word God so they, don't, so they can avoid saying Lord twice. Now, why this little study on God's names? Because Isaiah is using them to communicate the sheer wonder of God's character. The prophet keeps exalting him higher and higher with his words. He's the Almighty, the Lord of the universe, the creator who has life in himself. He doesn't need anyone or depend on anyone. The nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. The king of kings who dwells in unapproachable light. And what do we see him doing here? He's wiping away the tears from every face of his sons and daughters. Think about that for a minute. Whose tears have you wiped away in your life? I would bet that for probably all of us, we've only done that for someone very close, for a spouse or a child. It's a very personal, intimate act. But here we see the Lord of the universe stooping to wipe away his people's tears. This action is made even more powerful when we realize that God isn't just comforting his people. He's removing the very reason for their tears in the first place. You know, when I wipe away my little daughter's tears, there's often not much I can do to change the situation that made her cry or even to prevent it from happening again. But not so with God. He's wiping away all the tears for the last time. Now, you might say, well, Justin, that's just a, a metaphor. And, and you'd probably be right. The people at this feast are not going to be crying anymore. But God inspired Isaiah to use this picture for a reason. And it communicates such a, a deeply personal, gentle love that we can't comprehend. It's amazing to see God's power and his gentle love combined in this way. And it's actually no surprise then when we come to the New Testament and we see Jesus, the the second person of the Trinity, display the, the same kind of incredible authority and power over the world, over nature. Even in his uh, preaching, they said this is a man who's speaking with authority, something they'd never seen before. But at the same time, you see the gentleness and compassion of the Savior who uh, wept for the, at the, the grave of a friend or made time for little children to come to him. Even more than those examples, we see his love directed towards his bride, toward the church, to you and me. The author of Hebrews writes about Jesus. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And Jesus himself said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we look at God's lavish love for us, when we remember the promise of his future salvation and his love, the heart of every true believer wells up in worship and praise. And so that's what we find here in verse 9 as Isaiah shows us now the way to worship. The way to worship in verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. There are many prophecies in Scripture that refer to the future for all believers. 
But some time ago when I was uh, reading this text, I was really struck by the fact that the prophet gives us the very words that will be spoken on that day. And maybe this is obvious, but I had this funny thought, I'm going to say this. I want to remember to say this. It doesn't say that everyone's going to say it, but I want to be one of the people that does. And you can say it too. It's a, it's just such a beautiful statement of trust and worship in God's salvation. And I want this truth, let this truth sink into your hearts that this is a real event in history, this feast. Peter warns us that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it has from the beginning. And we live in a world that says that, that we it kind of whispers it to us subtly. You know, you guys really believe in all this, that God's going to come back one day. He hasn't come back in 2000 years. What makes you think it's going to happen? It's easy for us to hear that kind of talk and be around people that don't believe the same as us and start to think maybe in the back of our minds, maybe doubt a little bit and think, you know, it has been a long time. Maybe they're right. But the Lord gives us passages like this to remind us that it is real, that it is coming, that he will keep his promise and all will be made right in that day. Notice again this personal connection where he says, our God, it echoes verse one, only now it's everyone together. This is our God for whom we have waited. And it's interesting to notice that they're focusing on the Lord himself, not all of his benefits. There's there's no mention of all the blessings of um, heaven and the new earth. They're focused on the Lord. We're waiting for him. Many people want paradise. I mean, what false religion doesn't promise some kind of paradise, some kind of heaven that if you follow their rules and do what they say, um, you'll get in the end. But for believers... Heaven isn't heaven. The new earth isn't the new earth unless God is there, right? God's presence is what makes those places attractive. Jesus himself described eternal life not as endless existence in paradise, but by saying this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is about being with the Lord. This is how God's people worship him on the last day, or maybe I should say the first day. But what about now? As we ponder the riches of God's love for us, how do we respond now? There's many places, again, that we could turn to, but we don't have to go far. Because all of what we're doing now is bound up in this little word here, waited. We have waited for him. Because these are the believers, this is all of us in the future describing what we're doing right now on this earth. We're waiting for the Lord now. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? This idea shows up a number of times in the Bible. Some of you have Psalm 40, the beginning memorized. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Some Bible translations render it as hoping in the Lord. It's describing looking for something with eager expectation. It doesn't have this notion of impatience or empty time that is often in our use of the word. Um, Like waiting in line at the grocery store, um, 
If I was in California, I'd mention the DMV. Do you guys have the DMV here where you go to get your license? Maybe it's not the most efficient government office we have. In California, it's not. That's the idea. You know, you're kind of waiting in line. But in the Bible, uh, waiting doesn't have this kind of idea. It's, it's an active idea. It's the idea that God has left us here for a reason, to do his will, to make disciples of all the nations, to serve and love one another. It has the idea of trusting God now and expecting, looking forward with expectant hope to the future. I think one of the best places in Scripture that summarizes this idea of waiting is Jesus' parable of the talents. You all probably remember this story that Jesus told of a man who went into a far country and uh, before he left, he entrusted his property to all of his uh, servants and then he went away for a long time. And then he came back and settled accounts. And do you remember what he was looking for in his servants? He was looking for faithfulness. You had the three servants, the one who had a lot, the one who had a little bit less, and the one that had the least amount. And he commends the two that go that went and doubled his money while he was gone. Even though they get brought different amounts, he says the exact same thing. Enter into the joy of your master. It doesn't matter how much opportunity, how much skill, how much money, resources, whatever God has given you and blessed you with. It doesn't matter how much he's given you. What matters is faithfulness of doing what he's called you to do. All of us are where we are for a reason. You're in the family you're in for a reason. The job you're in. The part of the country you're in. God has given you opportunities in your life to be his man or his woman um, in that situation. And that's what it means to wait for him, to hope for his return, to look to the future, not in a way that removes us from the present to make us no earthly good, but to allow us to have hope for the future as we serve him. By contrast, in that story, the wicked, lazy slave who didn't even uh, he makes it known that he doesn't even really know the master. He thinks he's a hard man, um, is punished and thrown out of the house. You may have noticed that I didn't include the rest of chapter 25 in Isaiah this morning. The prophet returns in verse 10 to this theme of judgment. And it's a reminder to us that this wonderful uh, promise of blessing is not for everyone. It's not for those who reject the Lord and his offer of salvation. I just want to say, if that describes you this morning, if you're not a believer, if you haven't turned away from your sin and cast yourself on the mercy of Christ, don't wait another day. Jesus said, in the end will come at a time, in that same t- uh, text in Matthew 18, the end will come at a time when people don't think it will come. He will come as a thief in the night. We all need to be ready. Every one of us worships something. We, we can't help it. It's what we're wired for. A person who thinks they have nothing to live for uh, may even contemplate ending their life. And ever since the fall, people have been trying to satisfy this desire for worship with anything other than God. As Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. This morning, Isaiah has called us to worship and serve the true and living God. He's shown us the the lavish, undeserved love that moves us to worship. And he's reminded us of what that worship looks like, both both in the future and now in our day-to-day lives. 
And so as we worship God today, we wait in faithfulness and hope. I can't summarize what Isaiah says here any better than Peter does in the rest of that passage I started earlier from 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this promise from the lips of Isaiah that look forward to a glorious future when you will make everything right, when you will come for us and you will end sin and death. Lord, each one of us is facing trials and difficulties, um, hurts and sadness in this broken world. And we're thankful for this hope of the future that you give us, that we can look forward with confidence that you will return for us. I pray that you would uh, drive that confidence deep into our hearts as, as we face trials and as we face the mocking of the world around us, that we would remain faithful and that we would look for opportunities to serve and to wait in an active way, um, being faithful with what you've given us to do. Thank you for your love for us that so richly displayed in the blood of Christ. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.